Hi everyone, Charlie Webster here, and we've reached the end game in the series. So, what final analysis can we gather from the emotions and evidence of NDEs? And how can we promote coping and care in those who are affected and the family and friends that they share such soulful experiences with? Trust, acceptance and endeavour to learn more are key to gaining further understanding. Because, quite frankly, whichever side of opinion you stand, we will all face this journey one day in our lives. Learning to leave. Let's begin with Dr. George Mashur of the Center for Consciousness Science. I want to ask you a very abstract question, if you don't mind. And thank you, by the way. Everything you said is, is fascinating and so valuable. Do you think it's important for us to look at death to how we live our lives in terms of near-death experiences and what goes on? Oh, I, I don't think that's an abstract question. I think that's the most concrete, important question yes. that we should all be asking ourselves. Good. <laughs> you know, and, and that I asked myself. I think it was Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, who talked about being unto death. You know, it's like, how can you really be engaged in living without having that, not in a morbid way, but just recognizing that and having it influence you. Maybe it's because now I'm in my 50s, I'm thinking more about it, or, or, or being more cognizant that there's an end. But I do think about that. And I think about, you know, as I think about my decisions now and my next career step, and I was making a list of reasons you know, why to do this versus this. And number one on the list was, I'm going to be dead one day. I will be dead. And there are lots of things I can't predict, but I can predict I will die. And, you know, in my belief system, my consciousness will cease to exist. Not in a morbid way, but I do think kind of packed into your question is that thinking about this is important, not because of what's going to happen when I die, but because of what I'm doing right now. And so often we're, we're just, well, I won't speak for you or others, but I'm just so set, you know, I go to work, I do, and I have very meaningful work. It's important to me. I think it's doing some good in the world. I go home to a wife and children that I love, but being conscious that, that that's not always going to be, I'm not always going to be, they are not always going to be, mm. I think should be more operational in our in our daily lives. Dave and Miss Wondersmith are two people who encountered near-death experiences, and they both sum up the transformative impact that we all feel afterwards. I don't know how long I will live. Nobody does, but you know, adding pretty severe chronic illness into the picture adds a little more uncertainty. And I want to be ready when I do go. I want to I want to feel like I'm at peace with the idea of dying. But at least I know that when it's time to die that part of it will be peaceful. Cuz it seemed to give you a lot of peace and almost like respite from what you were going through in that moment, but it's interesting that that strength that was like no you're not ready to go. Do you think that was you and from inside yourself or do you think it was 
something else playing a part in that? It felt like me. Yeah, it felt like something in me. Um, and I think that it it made recovery a lot easier too because it's almost like I had felt so trapped in this pain-ridden body and not having an escape. And then it showed me that there was an escape and I chose not to take it. And knowing that I had made that choice to stay, even though I was kind of mad at myself in the moment for making it, helped me feel more in control. Yeah, I can really see that in that moment. You came back and was like, no, this is what I've chosen, rather than... Mm -hmm it consuming you. It also made me feel like maybe in at least in some cases death is more of a decision than our society really believes it is. I think of both of my grandmothers the timing of their deaths they waited until all of their children were able to visit and then they died. One of them was pretty religious, and she waited until the priest came and read a prayer over her and then passed right after that. And it it just made me feel like maybe they were experiencing something similar where they had a doorway and they chose one to go through it. I kind of nodded my head because... My um, nanan, so we call, I call her nanan from where I'm from, but grandma, nana, I felt like she was holding on and holding on and holding on. And I said to my mum, you have to let her go. My mum was like, you're right. And then she gave my nanan a picture of my granddad. It was her favourite picture. My granddad had already passed away and said, it's okay, mum, you can, you can go and be with my dad. And... Um, and my nan smiled, held the photo, and then left us. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like she was waiting to know that my mum would be okay and my mum to accept yeah. that she needed to go. I was kind of nodding a lot during what you were telling us about because I also feel like I made a choice of whether to live or not. We've never spoken before. We're from different parts of the world, let alone the country. And I had the same voice, which I do think was inside me, that, um, you know, was like, no, mm-hmm. this can't be right. I'm not, this is not over for me. I'm not, I'm not ready to go. I haven't, for me, it was more like, I haven't come this far in my life and fought through all these things for it to just end. I know we all have our certain beliefs and our beliefs differ, but... In general, because I think one thing I'm so curious about is how can we, the the transformative nature of what's happened to you and and loads of other people I spoke to and in myself is like how can we capture that so we we live our lives in a in a certain way or I just wonder what your learnings would be from it to to everyone no matter what they believe in. Yeah, well, the first thing that I learned uh, from you know this. Uh, near-death experiences that uh, a lot of people that contact me, they feel lonely and alone. 
and lost. And, um, but after experiencing, going through the, my experiences, the first thing I realized is that I'm never alone. Yeah? I'm never alone. Uh, there's always a, a spirit guide, a family member that loves me, that's with me all the time. And when I need their help, they're there to help like that. You know, I don't have to uh, call on them. I never feel alone anymore. Um, I never feel lonely. In fact, uh, sometimes when I am by myself, I feel very comfortable because I can feel my ancestors around me, especially when I'm working on important projects. Second thing is that we're all given multiple chances. Yeah, For me, uh, the creator spirit is very patient. And I have to be patient with me after four near-death experiences. <laughs> so, you know, for people who have one or two, um, it, it's a second chance. It's a third chance, fourth chance, you know. And so the creator is very, very loving and um, forgiving being. The afterlife, as we think about it, Everything that's uh, there is real. I, I believe that when I make the transition, uh, my loved ones will be there. Knowing that, and so far, you know, fear kind of like moves off on the side and your whole perception of death changes. And I think the most important thing for me, I guess, surviving all of these four near-death experiences is that the number of clients that are worked with that are near death and they're on they they're making a transition already and um, many of them are afraid they don't want to go and uh, having a person like me who experienced four near death experiences and seeing the other side and know what's there uh, it's very comforting for them to hear about my experiences and what i saw there and expect to find when I do make the transition myself. Yeah, I think there's so much comfort in that. That's one of the things I also think about with this conversation and this topic as a whole is is the, the comfort that hopefully yeah. it can bring to people that are in that situation or have had loved ones in that situation. It was interesting when you said it was the the fear that almost clicked you into... It was like, no, I'm not having this. I'm not, I, I have something to live for. And so I think there's so much, so much power in that. But for those that are, as you said, um, transitioning in, in your words, like to just take comfort and hope in that, no matter what any of us believe. Yeah. The use of the word fear is not necessarily a negative because it's not describing the experience itself. It's just that it's very natural when something first happens that you don't expect. There's a air of confusion. You're not too sure what you're looking at, and you're not totally aware yet of what's going on. And you see things that's unusual. That's natural to react out of fear. So fear of the experience itself 
is not it. It's just that uh, I don't know what's happening. So it's scary. <laughs> but as soon as you find out what's happening, then, oh, okay. NDE authors, Dr. Gregory Shushan, followed by Dr. Raymond Moody. There's some philosopher, theologian type scholars who say the fact that near-death experiences are different in different parts of the world shows that there can't be an afterlife because uh, why would there be different afterlife for different people? Which I think is, is a very easily dealt with argument because why is there such different lives for everybody in this life? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a re- I think it's a, it's kind of ridiculous to assume that, you know, when I die, I should have the exact same afterlife as, Maybe. you know, yeah. a, a you or, yeah. or even, or, or even more so like a, you know, a 14th century medieval monk or a Japanese child from the 19th century or whatever, you know, we have such different life experiences. Why should our afterlife experience be the same. Yeah. And I think that's why when NDEs are so different, when you look at it from that perspective, then you can kind of conceive of of an afterlife that actually is different for different people. And going back to what we were saying at the very beginning that, you know, I see it as it's almost like the, the NDE is like a shell that needs to have symbols put onto it to be experienceable in a way. We need to be able to kind of clothe it in ideas and memories and images. And if that's the case with just an NDE, that it's, you know, the experience is, it's objective, but it's given form by culture and individual, then that can be applied to, you know, what an actual afterlife is like. So therefore, it's going to be maybe similar, but perceived by different people in, in different ways. So then I start thinking, you know, when I die, because I know about all this stuff in in a pretty comprehensive way, what am I going to be expecting? What am I going to be hoping for or fearing? At this point, I have no idea. But at the same time, I think, you know, whether the near-death experience is, is just the dying brain or whether it's something that's genuinely spiritual or whatever, it does seem like we're going to have this amazing possibly glorious, mind-blowing experience that's going to make us think that it's completely real, whether it is or not. And that's, you know, after that point, we might just switch off. And then what a way to go, you know, to, to have this final, you know, transcendent, exuberant, omniscient kind of moment, and then you're gone. So that won't be so bad. Or you go to this other kind of realm, which is, you know, maybe like a lucid dream where you're you're creating it, co-creating it with spirits of others or whatever, and uh, which is also going to be pretty interesting. So I've never been afraid of death, but this has kind of made me even less afraid and on a sort of different, different level. So do you think we'd actually ever find some kind of yeah. conclusion? Well, you do, in like when, in our lifetime? Well, yeah, let's put it this way. Rather than conclusion... Let's say that we will have some sort of dramatic enlightenment on it, because whether it will come in the way of a logical argument or in something else unforeseen, I don't know. But yeah, I'm beginning to think that the question is resolvable. But I also why do you think that? that? I'm intrigued. Well, that is my life's work. What I have been interested in all my life is why. 
things don't make sense. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things don't make sense to them. Yes, yes. And I had that vision very dramatically when I was seven or eight years old. And I realized, as I'm sure you did at that age, that there's something fishy here, right? If you try to think of the size of this thing we're in, you can't go anywhere. Your mind goes to the wall. Right. But then you say, just a minute, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of the wall? Mm -hmm. But the idea that it goes on and on forever, that doesn't make sense. So I realized when I was about seven or eight that the world we're in is unintelligible. But that was okay for me because um, my favorite authors were Lewis Carroll and uh, Dr. Seuss. I guess, somebody told me recently that you have him in Britain too, but that wasn't. Yeah, we tour. do. I grew up yeah. with his books. Oh, you did. Yeah, and, and actually, in the studio we're in, we have so many different artworks of Dr. Seuss. Believe it or not. Listen, I've got one for you in his alphabet book, which is called On Beyond Zebra. He says, in the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts <laughs> where your alphabet ends. And I think that's the situation we're in. In the Western way of thinking, there's a fundamental cognitive flaw in the way the Western thought is set up. And it has to do with, it. it's shown by the fact that people love nonsense. And that's the same thing we are with this analogous. I mean, this is nonsense, but see, that's all right. Go back in your mind to the year 1915, right? And be well-educated, informed, intelligent person of 1915 and listen to the following three sentences. Number one, all four of Ethel's grandparents perished and were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born, right? In 1915, that's nonsensical. Now, add the knowledge that of the role of DNA and inheritance, the gene editing, gene splicing, cloning, and you can see that now the scenario is intelligible, right? It, or listen to this one from 1915. Two women got married to each other in City Hall yesterday. Nonsensical, right? But in, nowadays, it's the law. Or here's one. Go back to 1915 and listen to, I watched a movie on my phone this morning. <laughs> yeah, that's a good so, one. They would be I, like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what I'm getting at is just because something is unintelligible at, at the present moment, that's his old, in science, nonsense has been kind of a placeholder. It's something we hold on to, to in the expectation that in the future we'll... We'll figure it you know, out. So almost yeah. like in X amount of years, our conversation yeah. will be so different from somebody listening to it down the line because of that, maybe they'll have information that we now don't have. That's right. That's right. And so, but I think that this is, you know, where we are, in my opinion, with the afterlife question now is that it will turn around. 
I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly or something. If you look at it in those terms or whatever form of energy, you know, they say that nothing can actually be totally extinguished. It just transforms into another kind of energy. So um, if there's an afterlife, then I just think it's consciousness has transformed into another kind of energy that's no longer reliant or intertwined with the physical brain and body. It doesn't mean that it's something that's, you know, woo-woo or even mystical. It's just like, no, we just, we evolved to a different state. It, it might just be, in a sense, mundane, you know, the same way that I look at a picture of myself when I was two or three years old, and I'm a completely different human being from from that kid. <laughs> that's a really fascinating way to look at it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, it really is. I never thought of it like that. I suppose I always saw it as you either... <laughs> believe or you don't and if you do believe then you believe in something after and if you don't you don't <laughs> I suppose I was being yeah. a bit more straight with it but I really like how you just put that it's, it's really fascinating definitely made me think and the predestiny deity thing too I think it, it actually complicates things more I think it's a lot easier to understand and conceive of an afterlife mm. based on the kinds of stories and evidence that we have without having to go see Jesus or Utu or Yama or whatever cultural deity there is. I mean, maybe that deity is there, that being of light, and maybe we do just overlay it with our, you know, cultural projection of what we think of a god, mm -hmm. or maybe it's just impersonal light or consciousness or one of the theories about what the afterlife is like is it's like groups of consciousnesses together kind of giving it form, you know, like group souls uh, who, who give it a, a kind of dreamlike physical reality, you know? So maybe it's just that. Maybe it's the, the group consciousness that we experience as that. NDE researcher and author Dr. Jeffrey Long and near-death experiencer Miss Wondersmith offer a simple but far-reaching solution that we need to concentrate on how we live together rather than if we die alone. You know, someday when I do cross that threshold, but I wouldn't say that it cemented any of my like belief systems. I think instead it kind of disrupted any that I might've had at the time of just like, who knows what's out there? <laughs> who knows what, if anything is next. But to me, the idea that our mind could conjure something that beautiful is magic in its own right. And the thought that my physical energy will be passed on in, you know, a very scientific way still feels like magic to me. So I don't really need to believe in anything else, but I'm also not strictly against believing in anything else. I guess the feeling I have is like, who am I to decide what's out there and what's real? <laughs> <laughs> I'm smiling because I've spoken, Miss Wondersmith, to quite a lot of people that have had experiences, people that are academics, researchers, spiritualists. <laughs> you know, it's surprising how many people say the same thing. Really? Like, yeah, like no matter how much they've dedicated their lives. And I started this and I was like, right, I'm going to 
try and figure this out. And and then now I'm almost like, well, do I need to? Like, you know, do we actually need to? And will we ever anyway? So is it is it okay to just to be okay with that and then learn from people like yourself that have been close to those experiences of how to deal with the thought of it in our actual current existing lives Mm -hmm. and what can we learn from it to help live our lives now and not necessarily have that fear over what's going to happen yeah well I think a big way that it's impacted me was was feeling like okay life is it's a gift. It's, I mean, we don't know what comes next. We don't know if this is all we've got. And the, the takeaway for me was like, I may already have a shorter life than I want. I hope not. But after like three near-death experiences, that is something, uh, something I think about. And that's when I really started to work from my heart a lot more than from my analytical mind when I decided that I wanted to devote my time here to bringing wonder to strangers and just kind of being a force of light to others that that is what feels more meaningful to me than making a lot of money or having a lot of things. That if I can live as comfortably as I can, considering, you know, the the pain that I'm in just kind of all the time and work in ways that are in line with my health, not pushing it in ways that I, I just can't do. That was the life I wanted to have. And that drastically changed what my art practice looked like, what my value systems were, who I am as a person shifted. I think that that wish to share wonder was always in me, but it was very much intensified by that experience. I would have to say in all humility, as a scientist, even though I've studied these over 20 years and over 3,500, I firmly believe that what we do not know about near-death experiences exceeds what we do know. It's still a wide open field of study. There are so many things that we can learn from so many people that share their experience. So many amazing, wise concepts that we can learn. So many insights to the meaning and purpose of earthly life so many insights into what lies beyond death's door, insights that seem to be occurring consistently all around the world. It really is intriguing for me to think, gosh, maybe this is the the cornerstone of spiritual experience that we could literally use to build a bridge of peace and understanding around the earth beyond what even exists now. And if we could sort of start that international dialogue, that respect, acceptance of other people based on that common spiritual experience that could literally open the door to increasing global understanding, peace, and boy, do we need that now, mm-hmm. and harmony. That would be a real hope. It, it offers, in a world so full of divisiveness, so many of those things that, that keep us apart, 
uh, around the world, around the different countries, near-death experiences with their remarkable consistency in what occurs, how people process them after effects, how people change and change for the better. Worldwide consistency could really be that foundation for moving the, this earth together towards peace and harmony. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that's asking for a lot, but on the flip side, I can't think of any better way than near-death experiences, the shared near-death experience, which isn't rare. Uh, you know, people that have a life-threatening event, about 10 or 20% of people have a near-death experience. That's millions around the world. Just listening to you, I'm like, yes, yes, because I think <laughs> one of the things it's brought to me is a real knowing and reassurance and strength. Yeah. And And I think that's something, rather than us feeling oh, well, you know, we can't talk about it because, oh, this yeah. doesn't believe that or that belief this. And can we just take the what we can take from it rather than question it around yeah. beliefs, but actually just take from it from a human point of view? Right. And, and you raise a really good point there. I mean, even if there's still some people wondering if near-death experiences are real or not, one thing you can't fake is the after effects. That's real. Everybody that has an after effect knows darn good and well that's reality it's beyond any possibility of faking it or being unreal about that so even if there was still that questioning about what causes near-death experiences the after effects those values that we all would hold in common everywhere on the world that a near-death experience occurred could be a unifying concept a path towards peace a path towards understanding people in different nations and different cultures worldwide. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great way to put it. The after of you can't you can't make the after effect up, can you? Yeah, I, uh, that's that's just a curious. <laughs> and I, I can attest to that. You know that. You know what <laughs> yeah. I'm saying. I've heard that before. I mean, you you can't. I mean, you can't. You know, everybody knows that. It's obvious to everybody that that you're greatly changed and changed positively, and that's. I mean, that you may not be able to, no one on the planet can share the specifics of your near-death experience, but they can certainly share in that joy, that love, that compassion, uh, that that new, in a sense, the new you that, that you and so many other near-death experiencers have had um, that really, you know, can literally be uh, ultimately that paradoxically going through what should be the most horrific event of their life, nearly dying, can be a blessing in disguise and result in changes that are uh, among the most positive, ultimately, things, uh, transformative experience of your life. I think that's the key phrase is the blessing in disguise. Well, I'm not grateful for it because it was traumatic and horrific and what I've had to yeah. do to come back from that and the impact and pain it caused my family. And at one point I felt like I was really bitter about it because it felt like I missed a lot during that period in terms of my career and opportunities. But then I had this huge blessing inside of it, though, and and they definitely clashed. Yeah. Somebody I spoke to also said to me, well, why do they have to be mutually exclusive? You can kind of feel that way about what happened, but you can have that that blessing and that transformative thing. And now I look back and I'm like, well, I'm not grateful for that. And But at the same time, I don't want to be the same person that I was before it either. So there we go. <laughs> That's my final that, thought. You show- <laughs> well, you are actually showing great courage. I mean, listen to everything you've shared here today. You could, and, and I f- guess a few people would do, would in bitterness, hang on to that life-threatening event, the fear, 
the anxiety and, and have it negatively impact their life. And yet through your courage of thinking about your near-death experience, manifesting those changes, which is hard, uh, you've now experienced the after effects. You're able to positively change and, and a real blessing, not only to yourself personally, but to everybody that you meet. So congratulations. That's, thank uh, that's you. a big deal. Thank you. That might make me cry, but thank you. I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. Yeah, it, it's a, it's it all means true. a lot. So thank it, you. Yeah, it really says a lot. I mean, it really says a lot about how awesome is that about the human spirit, what you shared with mm. us here, to take a life-threatening event and, and change it into uh, a positive in your life and many others. I mean, that's just awesome. It says so much about your life and I think gives each of us an inspiration that, that we can uh, grow even from the most difficult life events and, and change positively as a result. Thank you so much. And, th you know, thank you for what you just said. That means a lot personally to me, but also thank you for sharing your research with us, your experience through other people's experiences as well and, and helping us kind of decipher yeah. it I think is great but 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 most importantly actually the inspiration side so as Dr Raymond Moody put it will yesterday's nonsense prove to be tomorrow's sense our fears of death for those of us that have them might never disappear but maybe the more we learn the further we journey towards enlightenment that door to another room that stairway ascent towards light or that guide that wishes to hold your hand and assist crossing from this life to something else might just become less scary, more accepting, even welcoming for those that are ready. We cannot escape death, and we might never wish to embrace it. But acceptance in this life is something we can all learn together. I'm Charlie Webster. I had a near-death experience in 2016. I could have died, but didn't. And I am thankful that you shared this latest journey of discovery together with me. See you sometime, someplace, maybe here, or maybe there, if you know where I mean. Goodbye. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. <laughs>